2: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What you're about to hear is an unscripted, one-time counseling session focused on work. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality, names, employers, and other identifiable characteristics have been removed but their voices and their stories are real.
0: I gotta be honest, I chose this job because there was really nothing for me to do, and I just thought if I can go to the school, it's nine months long, I like to look pretty, I'll be able to wear whatever I want, but I don't wanna get close with all these random people. It stresses me out. While
3: hairdressers may come armed with a pair of scissors or a blow dryer, Their real talent lies in how they manage their relationship with the clients. What they do is way beyond cuts and color. In fact, the business they're really in is the business of people. I read a a line by a celebrity stylist named Nick Arojo. It, It said something like this, As shears snip perilously close to the face, As a new shape and style reveals itself, and as one begins to feel more beautiful, an uncommonly close friendship emerges, often for a lifetime. And how this relationship materializes is something of a curiosity. Like a bar stool or a psychiatrist's couch, the hairdresser's chair prompts people to pour out their hearts.
2: I just, I feel continually undermined.
0: The job has always been that place where I've been needed and I feel important. A lot of the people that work for me are like an extension of my family.
3: There's no doubt that your emotional and relational dowry comes with you to work. Imagine going to work every day in a really busy place and no one will make eye contact with you.
2: I mean, it feels like a breakup.
3: It doesn't feel. (laughs) It is. (laughs) So. How's work? How many years are you in the business? Oh gosh, 21. And you? 14. Okay, so we're not talking about beginners here, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Old dog.
3: <laughs> no, experienced
0: women. Yeah. most of my career, I'm just trying to figure out a way to like get away from it.
4: Yeah, she's always trying to do a different career.
0: Yeah. She's like,
4: like, not really a hairdresser. (laughs) That's what she always said.
0: I just want stability and consistency in my life. And, um, you know, I mean, that's the job. There's a lot of things I want to do in life, but really on paper, that's what I can do to make money. You know, Um, so now, yeah, I have have my first full-time job in six years.
3: Okay and how is it going so far?
0: I mean, it's going fine, but I've had a lot of fear of people. Which people? My bosses and coworkers. If I'm not, like, one of the things with our industry is that, that's different than a lot of jobs is, it's sales, basically. And if you're not busy, there's no like office to go in and shut the door, and you're just like out in a room with people. So for me, like when I haven't been busy, the financial insecurity is triggered, and then also like thinking I'm not good enough. So I've
3: just been, how many minutes of not busy? Do uh, you have sometimes to it be? could be
0: hours at a right. time.
3: But how many minutes before you triggered?
0: It's more like when I have to sit around for anything more than an hour, I I start to panic.
3: When you panic, what happens?
0: I start thinking everyone's against me and they don't think that my work is good enough and that I'm actually not busy because they don't want to give me clients. Then I go and ruminate down everything wrong I've done in my career to be in this situation. And then, I mean, because I'm in recovery 12 step, I now I go out and I like call someone from the program and try to reset because once I start having all those thoughts about why I'm not busy and what's gonna happen in my life and everything's gonna fall to pieces, I'll if I'm not like, Using the tools of recovery and like cognitive behavioral tools, I will start trying to control the situation and it has never worked in my favor. It's manipulation as well. Lots of manipulation.
3: <laughs> as in trying to endear yourself?
0: That and trying to get on the manager's um favorite list. Favorite list yes, of that's course. endearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and try to like get them to give me more people or even to throw other people under the bus so I'll get more people.
3: So when I, when, if I hear you, when you get in a panic, in the past, you try to get other people to get you out of the panic.
0: hmm
3: yeah. Primarily by endearing yourself and telling them how miserable you feel and please help me and make me feel better at any cost and today you're able to tackle your own negative self-talk, reach out but not as save me but as help me help myself.
0: Yeah? Yeah basically I mean I'm I'm feeling good about it that I've used those tools but I wish I didn't have to deal with the feelings of all this it's like very painful for me.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And daily sometimes.
0: Last week, it was like every day, like starting around, I think it was like Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And then the Friday, it was so bad. I felt like I was gonna have a panic attack.
3: Because ultimately- Is she one of the people you reach
0: out to? Yeah, she's one of my biggest, um, been one of the most supportive people in my life, you know, ever. And she knows like what I'm talking about, so there's that, you know. As I listen
3: to her talk about how insecure she feels, how, if she's not instantly busy, it becomes a marker of her self-worth, about her anxiety and her panic, about her sense that she's being judged and evaluated on a constant basis, and how she evaluates herself on a constant basis. From there to asking about her family is just a millimeter away. What's the echo chamber? between your family history and your fears at work. Sometimes I think that our relationship with our siblings is also a predecessor to our relationship with our co-workers.
0: Well, yeah, because, like, my brother got all the attention compared to me. Um, My parents, he just had more in common with them. So, yeah, I think what I realized at my job about a weekend is that No matter where I go, I'm always trying to make sure that I am gonna get taken care of. And I think that someone else is gonna get more like security than me because my brother did. It's a new awareness. Like they would just ignore me while I played with my toys but then they would be like doing T-ball and all that stuff with him. And they always would be like, why can't you just be more like your brother? He knows when to shut his mouth. I mean, my mom told me ever since you were born, you were a problem. You came out screaming and crying, and you drove me crazy, and your brother was an angel.
3: What an amazing welcoming ceremony.
0: So I've been hearing that, like, my whole life. I
3: mean, I'm being facetious, but this is, you're saying it with half a smile, but.
0: I'm just so used to it. So I think at work, like, if I see someone else get another appointment than me, I'm like, of course, nobody fucking cares about me, and they're only gonna care about this person. Sometimes we get our most powerful resources
3: from our family as well. Mm -hmm. Even from painful experiences in our families. She's immediately honest and she's able to connect the dots. And She sees that she has been competing with her brother all along and now she's competing with her coworkers and that there's an eerie resemblance between the relationship we have sometimes with our siblings and with our co-workers. Anywhere she goes, she immediately makes sure that she's being noticed. But the strategies that we develop in our childhood in order to adapt and to survive sometimes become worn out. And so what I'm also noticing is that she's constantly living as if she's in survival mode, even when there is really no need for it. And it is probably one of the most important tasks when we become adults is to realize which one of our adaptation skills is still important and useful, and which ones have actually become very counterproductive. And so I wanna bring both of them into this conversation now. What are some of the resources that they have? They wouldn't be successful otherwise. There's something from their experience as a child that they use in the way that they connect with their clients. What would you say are some of the significant resources that you draw? I'm going to make it more specific. Even. The significant resources that you bring to work and that you know find their roots in your family history.
4: Just the, the, kind of the tenacity, like the stick to I, th- I think both my, you know, it,
3: it's funny, I don't often think of the things they've done. <laughs> you well. never think of it in a positive <laughs> term, you yeah. see, because you think of the legacy in the way that it right. hurt you, but it's more complex than that. Mm-hmm. It's a fractal, you know, mm-hmm. and, the strengths that you have come often from the same place as the troubles that you have. Yeah. You know,
4: while while you guys were talking, I thought, you know, my father as a You listened so
3: beautifully and you (laughs) thought about a lot of things at the same time. I saw. (laughs) Yeah, thank you.
4: Um, I think my, you know, as a child, my father didn't pay a lot of attention to me because he was working so much. And then when he would come home, he... Loved to go into the basement. He was a grateful deadhead. He loved his music. That's like where he went. So his presence wasn't that there in my life, whereas my mother was like kind of all over me (laughs) in a lot of ways. But I remember when I just started in our industry and I was 21 and I got this celebrity hair salon job as an assistant. And I remember coming home with like a pile of tips like in the envelopes. And, like, dumping them on the kitchen table. (laughs) And, like, he lit up, like, it it was like he was paying attention to me. Something about me actually ignited his attention, which I was not used to. And And
3: your experience of it was?
4: I mean, I just wanted more of that. (laughs) Mm. Which I think has, you know, contributed to the drive I have. But my drive has been also, like, a detriment
3: at times. Does it create, do you feel that you are continuously in a competitive environment, or that there is also solidarity?
4: I think the place I'm at now is the best of the places I've been, and it's interesting because it's it's almost like the top level of talent that I've worked with. I think a lot of that has to do with me because a lot of it is in my own mind. Mm. Like, a lot of it is me. I'm the one setting the competition. You know, when you come into work, everybody's looking at everybody's, like, schedules to to see how many clients you have. It's just, like, it's just a thing (laughs) that you do. And if I have a lot of clients, my worth is up here. And if I don't have a lot of clients that day, I go into the toilet. And And so... And what
3: can the job do to make, to alleviate that? When you say it's the best place I've been at, what...
4: I mean, I think the... The owner of the place I work sets the tone, too. So she's super successful, you know, a very celebrated uh, hair colorist. But she's humble. And so the younger generation there kind of models her, like after her. So there just isn't a whole lot of ego. Whereas when I came into the business in the 90s, I mean, it was so full of (laughs) ego and... Everybody's, you know, it was very cutthroat. So I I think a lot of it has to do with the the leader. Like, I think that sets the tone. And then the other really positive thing is that um, people ask for help at this place, which I've never seen in any other place. Like, if I had a question about hair color, you would just never. Mm -hmm. Like, whereas here, it's more of a team effort. And so you have, like, you know... I mean, I know for me, I I want to know what the the kids are doing because that's that's what keeps it fresh and alive.
3: Mm-hmm. Does that change your inner state, or is your inner state active on its own, on its own? irrespective of the environment in which you're in?
4: Um, I think I think now my inner state has improved enough to where. Um, I'm matching my environment. I I feel like a lot of the time the places I worked were a reflection of my inner state. So um, some of the worst times in my life, it was like I would inevitably be working for somebody who would abuse me to the extent that I <laughs> was abusive or critical of myself. And um, and then I worked in other explain in, this to me. Oh yeah. Um, well, I guess I would say again, like, when when I was in, like, the throes of my addiction and, you know, eating disorder, like, very self-destructive, my first job was assisting this colorist who would just, like, shame and humiliate me and criticize me and, you know, nothing was good enough and you'll never be a colorist and, you know, women will never be as successful. It was just, like, every, you know, every... Harsh and mean thing that you could say, you know, sh- body shame, shame my outfit, like, Ugh. like everything, like he would just tear me to pieces. But looking back, that was really a match to what was going on with me. Like that's definitely was my own inner dialogue. He would say all the things I already believed to be true about myself. It was just you know reflected in.
3: His treatment of you feel me. the pain while she talks, right? <laughs> I
0: just don't. It's like
3: she's lacerating.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I'm just so sick of like <laughs> that, like attraction. Yeah. Like I just because right now I'm working so hard on like really having high self worth and I think, to him. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I I think it's like the best it's been, but. I'm just like so, I get like really afraid with the law of attraction stuff that (laughs) if I think like something, you know, negative, that it's gonna like happen on the outside, you know? But I guess like I don't want like, you know, bad stuff to happen because I'm feeling that on the inside. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, exactly. But But I I didn't make a lot last week. I I think that's crazy.
3: (laughs) Well, you're practicing. Mm -hmm. you're practicing Mm -hmm. that if you have a week where you have less income, that doesn't necessarily translate instantly into you're a lesser person.
0: Because that's what it is for me a lot. It's like, if I've got money, like, coming in... Let me
3: stop you one second. Uh Because I just noticed something here. You were talking, and you were reacting to what... She was saying, so I just wanted you to voice it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: But Then you began talking about you again.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And you're used to that. Used to what? To having someone take over and say, you think you have it bad? Let me tell you mine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you just retreated.
4: I did. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't notice.
3: But now you do?
4: I I mean, I get, I get it's hard because I have like a mentoring type yes. of relationship with her. Yes,
3: but I'm going to something different. Yeah, because she she literally took it back and took it over to her, and you receded.
1: Mm.
3: Is that familiar to you?
4: I mean, yeah. I would I would say so. Actually, in the workplace, I could see where that type of thing happens and it makes me think of like the this bigger this this hindrance that in my career I've had with like being seen or being visible in spite of having a lot of like talent and skill at what I do where I grew up when I got attention and I did when I was like a teenager and people started to notice me and I, you know, I actually was, like, was physically attacked for that, for, like, the things that were positive about me, mm-hmm. even though it's a little different than what we're talking about. But, but it's just something where I will shut it down, I'll dim
3: down. And what about whom pre- sets you up for this receding? Because at home? Because you recede, see, so you do two things at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you recede, and then on the other hand, you watch to see who gets more.
4: Mm, that's true. That's definitely true. Who at home? I think probably like my father, I would like recede more because I was afraid of him, his disapproval because I got so little from him to begin with. So I think any more disapproval from him or any sense of disappointing him, I... I think I would, you know, I would, that would
3: dim me down. Do you think that it changes the way you work with a female boss or a male boss?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's an, definitely an interesting question. Um, this is actually part of the theme and why this is all very interesting to me. Like, with authority figures, how I do turn them into parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um So, yeah, I mean, with men, sometimes I feel like it's like a sexualized piece where I turn myself into an object. And then I feel like with sometimes male bosses, I feel like I have to kind of use that angle. Even though I I don't do anything, I I just feel like I put that foot forward
3: a little. Um, Explain to me.
4: Um, that foot
3: can mean a lot of things yeah, and yeah. look a lot of ways. I think just
4: being coy or even acting childlike sometimes like if I need to get my need met, I can be like like a little girl and then they think I'm cute and then they, you know. And it's not um yeah, it's kind of a
3: newer Yours is a cute little girl and yours is the damsel in distress.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. I always have to be, like, needing help.
3: Very early into this conversation, it becomes clear to me that these are two seasoned professional hairstylist women who, while they talk about their fears, their insecurities and their challenges with their sense of self-worth, they are also talking about their competitiveness, their singular mindedness and the way that they each try the age-old seduction tactics that women have engaged with forever when seeking power, recognition, affirmation and attention. So these strategies mm. mm-hmm. are primarily with men bosses.
0: The needing the help I only do that with guys.
3: And the coy's cute. Yeah. Little girl daddy help me.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Or just like, you know, just using look, like appearance mm-hmm. to get approval or um
3: attention. Attention. Yeah. And with women bosses? What's the strategy?
0: Avoid. I've either had like <laughs> avoid at all the te-
4: like, Defiant teenager. I've had that one at a couple of jobs, because mm-hmm. ultimately I'm afraid of authority figures. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like threatened even when there is no threat. I sense a threat. That. So, um. Uh, like rejection, abandonment, or um. like humiliation or just being shamed because I think with my at least particularly with my mother and I actually know you can relate to this like having somebody who really gives you a lot of like adoration and oh you're so amazing and you're this and you're that and then like it switches and then it's like you're a piece of shit and you're a fucking you know Failure and how come you're not as good as this one, and how come this one gets a hundred and you didn't get a and you got <laughs> a ninety five like so and I feel like I've had employers like that, you know, you know over not not anymore because i I think I've done enough interior work on myself that I just i don't that's not my experience anymore, but for years, that was my experience with like Bosses saying even very similar things that my own mother <laughs> would
3: say. And the growing up was about mm. finding different bosses or putting limits. Mm.
4: Oh, I always found a new boss. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Have you learned to put limits?
4: Um, I'm learning. It's uh, the, yeah. It's a great question. I it's yeah. It's been really hard because I'll. I've instead more like, how do I exit the situation, <laughs> or I or I just get so um, <laughs> outraged about the situation, s- similar to how I felt with my mother. That yeah, I just leave and the and voice I of leave outrage like a, says you. what the what the voice of the outrage
3: yeah.
4: Um, Fuck you for not valuing me, for not seeing me, for not supporting me. And now, you know, now you have to deal with the the consequences
3: of that. (laughs) Like of my leaving. But with a client, how do you do it? Because I assume sometimes you have clients. We haven't talked about the clients either, right?
4: It's totally different with a client.
2: you can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the PropG podcast. we got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work.
3: Basically, you're telling me there is me with the boss, me with the co-workers, and me with the clients. Yeah,
4: and it's all very different. And the, with the client, I'm, like, the overgiver, The, I mean, people-pleaser beyond. Like, and I'm in a job that it kind of is about pleasing people to an extent, but um, over-nurturing, like, over, just over-giving. Um, what but it's is all the- out of fear of, like abandonment or rejection
3: and humiliation again. So you give while you resent the fact that you've given so much power to them? You you enjoy the giving or you feel like I'm giving just as a deterrent strategy?
4: I think if I give so
3: I don't have to feel afraid that... Yeah, I think that's what it is.
4: Yeah, it's like, just, it's definitely very fear-based
3: that I'll lose them, you know. Even though it's notorious that people are loyal
4: to their yeah. stylists and yeah. their colorists yeah. more than
3: many, many other businesses.
4: Yeah. Yeah, no, and I have, I have so many clients for, like... A lifetime. Yeah, yes. a lifetime. But I can't see that. Like, I'll, I'll focus on the one out of ten that wasn't happy that day, and I'll obsess and I'll ruminate and... Um, like there was an experience I had seven years ago where I had made a move. I moved. This I moved salons, and and I had like five of my clients reacted really strongly. Like I hate it here. What do you? Why did you come here? Like such a you know so like strong, and these were like the clients who were like my mom's age, who were like my who were like, they were like moms to me, you know, or I made them that way, like. I just never expected that switch, and I went into such, like, a a panic, like, a, a, that was so disproportionate to the situation.
3: What is the trauma legacy of this?
4: Uh, I mean, I just think with my, mostly with my mother, like, emotionally and psychologically. You know, she was not, she was very, uh, Unstable that way, and like she, it would be very loving one moment, and then another would just be totally like cutting me down and hysteria and panic. She was very like, you know, undisciplined emotionally. So seeing somebody in that state just brings up such a sense of fear, but also a responsibility. um, That it's my fault, but that it's also my job to fix it. And I definitely have brought that into my work with clients where, like, their emotional upset suddenly becomes my responsibility. And it's too big for me, and I I never, like, it's like walking on eggshells, like, am I good right now or am I not good right now?
3: And and I'm never really sure that what I do is going to change their mood. Right. Even though I have to but their mood has just switched yes. and flipped irrespective of what I do.
4: Yes. You know, we all have coworkers who are like, who cares? That bitch is crazy. Mm-hmm. Who cares? And I'm like, no sleep for a weekend. Total mm-hmm. obsession.
3: And have you learned the tools? Have you learned some tools yes. to, to regulate yourself, yes. to, to, to literally to deal first of all with mm-hmm. the body because yeah. your body is holding it, oh, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah, um, so many. Yeah, like a lot of breathing. Mm-hmm. I,
3: I and you can do it in the moment.
4: I can now do it in the moment. It's relatively new that I can regulate myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somewhat. I, I still have room to grow there, but um, I, I don't go. I don't go that low anymore. So you know,
3: you do sleep during the weekend.
4: Now I sleep. I do not lose sleep over a client for the mo yeah for the most part there and actually there was a client who it wasn't really because it's something I did but I referred her to get a haircut because I do color and I referred her to get a haircut and she wasn't happy with the cut. And she like freaked out <laughs> and like put her hands on me. And she's like, I thought you said it was gonna be here meaning like collar but she like touched me and it like really I froze, which is, like, the first response. And then I had, like, I had, like, a couple of bad days, but then I bounced back. Whereas I think something like that in the past, also because she did it in front of people, that scenario of being publicly humiliated would have, you know, but there was a... Something more solid in me, where I realized that, like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. Like, I, I just Beautiful. didn't take any of it on. Beautiful. Yeah. So that was definitely a success.
3: That's when you know. Yeah. Things are changing. Things are
4: changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, breathing, meditating, yoga. Just I try to do a bunch of things like that to, you know, there. Well,
3: here you did more than that. Here you simply also said, "This is not home. I'm yeah. not a child with mm-hmm. mom." This is a client who is not happy with her cut. Mm -hmm. And I am not responsible. Mm -hmm. I can care, but I am not responsible. Right. I mean, you you stayed in the here and now. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: It's more that. When you're triggered, you're not just remembering, you're reliving.
4: Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I was definitely more in my body in that
3: moment. When you froze, you were reliving. Yeah. But once you were able to breed yourself out of it, you were mm-hmm. in the here and now. You were mm-hmm. not right. the eight-year-old. Right. How old is she?
4: Uh, who, the, the girl? The girl.
3: The girl that freezes.
4: I think like, yeah, I, I always think of her around like between 10 and 12, because that's when I first started displaying, like, OCD, like, control, you know, just behaviors to control my sense of chaos.
3: (laughs) A child that grows up with a parent who goes back and forth between loving and aggressive and violent, between hugging and slapping, is a child who as she describes, becomes sometimes intensely responsible for thinking that they created the inner state of the other parent or that it's their responsibility to change their mood. And they experience a sense of dread about it and an uber sense of responsibility for it. She experiences that with her clients as we discuss the need to establish a boundary. To put a limit. The limit is not in saying to the other person, don't talk to me this way. The limit is also to understand where the other one stops and where she starts so that she can be kind or respectful or firm or decisive without feeling that the life of the other is her own, basically, or the inner life of the other is her own. And she's doing that by learning all kinds of strategies for self-regulation through breathing, through yoga, through meditation. But these strategies give her the space that is needed to then establish the boundary that is really the determining factor. The boundary that says, this is where I stop and this is where you start. And therefore, if you were upset about your haircut, that doesn't make me stay awake for the whole week. Are most of your clients women? Yes. And do you ever see a kind of an irony that you went into a place? uh, uh, (laughs) Finish the sentence.
4: Well, yeah. Oh, gosh. With so many...
3: It's a practice that is the continuation of your childhood. Yeah. Right? Pleasing women. Pleasing (laughs) women.
4: Who are sometimes emotionally, you know... Not, yeah, just erratic, I
3: guess. But you don't just please them. They also let you get close to them. Mm
4: -hmm.
3: Because you're one of the few professions that people can still touch someone. Oh, yeah. And not have to fear instant repercussions. Right. So you get to have a closeness, Mm -hmm. a physical closeness. Mm -hmm. You get to touch. Mm -hmm. You get to put your hand in their hair, which is one of the most... Early experiences yeah. any baby ever has mm. universally. You get to wash their hair, which is one of our most primary experiences. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very intimate. It's very physical. It's mm-hmm. very proximate. So you get to come close to the women. You're not just yeah. busy pleasing them. Right. You also get to have a closeness you never had.
4: Right. Yeah, and that's the part I do love.
0: That's the part I hate. <laughs> Too much responsibility. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) Meaning?
0: I don't know. Like when you were saying all that stuff to her, I just... I don't like touching these people really and dealing with all their bullshit. If they're nice, then it's like a lot better, you know? and they mostly are, but I just, I gotta be honest, like I i chose this job because I was like really out of control and I was so young and I just, there was really nothing for me to do and I just thought if I can go to the school, it's nine months long, I like to look pretty, I'll be able to wear whatever I want, it was, you know, but Yeah, like it's so stressful for me dealing with these people. Just hearing you talk about that, I was like, oh my God, I don't want to go to work after this. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm so serious. Like, um, and then the guys, since I cut hair, like I deal with the men, you know? I like having relationships with people, but I don't like like multiple hours of my day, I'm like on the judgment block. At something like this, I'm just taking orders from people all day. I don't want this piece like this. Like move it right here. Like it's just so, I get like angry even thinking about it. Like I used to want to be famous, career, all that stuff. And now it's like, I just want to like meet the right guy and get a cute dog and maybe move out of the city, (laughs) you know? But I guess, like, I don't trust that it will happen or something. Like, can I say something? Yeah. I mean
4: I yeah. Like, I think
0: more than something.
4: <laughs> like, because I know you well. I know it's like a defense, mm-hmm. and and that I see that that's the stories. To start. Well, I don't really. I hate these clients anyway, and I don't really want to do this anyway. It, you know, as a way to like avoid.
3: Can someone? Not like something without it meaning you're not good enough?
0: I'm just afraid of getting like fired. No, you're
3: afraid of being homeless. Yeah. Not just fired. <laughs> you're afraid of being destitute. You're mm. afraid of remaining nothing. You're, it's, it's a complete descent. It's not just I got a client and they didn't like the cut. <laughs>
0: It's like so it becomes and they white. didn't like
3: the cut, and I'm not good enough, and I'm not good enough, and I'm gonna be fired, and I'm gonna be fired, and, and, be and I'm gonna street. be penniless, and I'm gonna be penniless, and I'm gonna be homeless.
4: Yeah. And
3: the only defense against it is to say, I don't like these people, mm-hmm. because if I don't like them, then I diminish the power that they have over their ability to destroy me. Mm. And in an interesting way, it's like you're not in relationship with them; it's everything that they can do to you it's not a mutual relationship. You actually rarely think about them. You only think about what they do to your sense of self. Mm-hmm. How they can elevate you or crush you. Mm-hmm. And how you resent the power that they have over you, which of course you hand them in all, in their ha- all in your head. Mm. But there is very little, there's no other person. When you talk about them, they're not real people. They're all stand-ins for your family. But no. they're not real people. <laughs> you know? Make it
0: stop, please. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm
3: saying? They're not real yeah. people. I have no sense that of these people sense. as human beings, right. who they are, right. what they had this morning, why they came to get a haircut because they just lost somebody, or because they just got fired, or because they just realized that their partner had been cheating on them, or because whatever. There's no sense that these other people have an inner life. The only one with an inner life is you. They're like stand-ins of trigger points. Mm -hmm. They're like acupressures, Mm -hmm. but in the negative sense.
0: But how how do you I'm so afraid of something bad happening to me. Like I And what I'm suggesting to you
3: is that you will you may be less afraid if you actually made these people more three-dimensional. If you began to see them as people with an inner life, with a psychology, with a complexity, with circumstances, with a story. Otherwise, they are just triggers for your story. Mm -hmm. If you humanize them, they would shrink to size. They wouldn't all be these ominous, demonic powers. Imagine you go today... And when somebody sits down and they're new, you approach them with curiosity. I come to you.
2: Mm-hmm. I've
3: never met. I have no idea where you are. doesn't matter. And I just say, somebody recommended because that's probably how I got to you. I'm no less scared than you are. But when you meet me, you think only you are scared. Mm-hmm. You don't have a clue that I may be worried or that I'm nervous or that I once had a, a bad experience or that... I have so much hope because I don't feel good about me that you would make me feel better about me because you're going to beautify me. I mean, I too come with the whole story to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you say, we are new to each other. What's it like for you when you meet a new hairdresser, or stylist? You ask that question to the person. That's a curiosity question. What have been some of the cuts you've really liked? Do you want to guide me? Do you want me to, you know, do you have any idea of what you want? You know, in a way, the two-minute the two conversation between what do you want? Do you know? Can you express what you want? Can you articulate it? It is one of the most beautiful rituals of consent. Mm-hmm. In two minutes, we are establishing an entire contract between strangers at that moment.
0: Um, where it really goes wrong for me is like, I just, I think that people like aren't gonna like it.
3: And like, I'm suggesting something to I don't. you. Listen to me carefully. Mm-hmm. Because you're talking about you. Mm-hmm. And I am trying to move the needle over to them. Mm-hmm to really be curious about them, not to project on them. They don't exist in real terms, these people. They just exist as figments of your frightening imagination. I want you to be actually curious about the person sitting and giving herself over to your magical hands.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And I want you to think about that person not about what she's going to do to you, if she's going to affirm you or destroy you, but about who she or he is at the level that is necessary. It's curiosity that will ground you in reality. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: Can you imagine this? Yes, take a deep breath.
0: (laughs) I feel so much anxiety Uh from thinking about all this. I have, like, a headache. Um,
3: (laughs) Then stay with the breath for a moment. Yeah. Just stay with the breath.
0: Don't talk. Okay. Don't talk.
3: I just said a lot to take in. And sometimes, the minute you put your hands in their hair, they start talking. They confide in you. You know, I always think it's either this couch, the bar stool, or the hairstylist chair. That's where the stories get told.
0: But what about the people that just, like, aren't nice? Like, can we, cause there's a lot of them, and they sit down and the first thing they say is, how long is this gonna take? Cause I need to leave in like 25 minutes. And it's already something that would be ridiculous to think that it would take that long because it would be longer, 45. And then as soon as you start working, they tell you they don't like that. And then they say, where did you work before this? And they literally want to make you feel bad. It's not every day necessarily, but you know. It's it's helped me to see that
4: when there is a difficult client, it's not a unique experience personal to me mm-hmm. that it happens to everybody. So I I including like my boss who again is like a you know world renowned, you know person in the industry, and to see that she has unhappy clients too, and this one has a redo too, and this one has this, you know, and it doesn't break them and it just takes it off of me as like, oh, this thing that's happening to me because I mm. suck, because I'm not good enough, and all this pressure, beautiful. and, beautiful, you know, that has helped me navigate a difficult client, because inevitably everybody has one.
3: Mm-hmm. And Is that you just... useful?
0: Yeah, it's useful, and I mean, I know logically and from experience, the more calm you are and just, like, easygoing, then... You kind of can like diffuse it, you know. If you're defensive, it just makes it worse.
3: Interestingly though, we talked about clients and you went directly to the but what about the mean ones? mm mm-hmm. They're not the majority. No. But that's the one but they're the ones you wanna hone
0: in on. I I'm just
3: mm-hmm. I'm happy to help you with them, by the way. <laughs> but it's uh, it's like Part of what will change your experience of the world is that you resist going to those as the first ones and as the only ones that matter like mm-hmm. the one in ten that you just spoke about right. before right mm-hmm. you know Can you imagine that the one that sits in the chair and says, "I only have 20 minutes um, isn't only being mean but may have maybe in the midst of a big problem themselves. Mm-hmm. And curiosity would say, "Are you having a tough day?"
0: Mm-hmm.
3: It's I, true. Huh? It's so true.
4: That's when I was able to make that switch off of myself and onto them. It totally alleviated a lot of that pressure. Like, oh, you know, oh, where are you going? You have to be. What, what time do you have to be out? Like when they're all like, "Ah, I gotta get out of here." <laughs> oh, what do you have going on? Just lighten it. I just try to lighten it, realizing that they're anxious. How can I alleviate their anxiety? This way it's about them and not me. Mm-hmm. That's good.
3: Well said. It- <laughs> Very well said.
4: <laughs> yeah, it helps. It definitely
1: Esther Perel is a best-selling author, speaker, and host of the podcast, Where Should We Begin? To learn more about Esther Perel's world, to sign up for her newsletter, or to apply to be on the podcast, go to estherperelcom slash How's Work. How's Work is produced by Magnificent Noise for Gimlet and Esther Perel Productions. Our production staff includes Eric Newsom, Eva Wolchover, Destry Sibley, Alex Lewis, Kristen Muller, and our coordinating producer is Lindsay Rutowski. Our recording engineer is Noriko Okabe. And Damon Whittemore is our mix engineer. The theme song was written by Doug Slaywin, And the executive producers of How's Work are Esther Perel and Jesse Baker. We would also like to thank Nazanin Rafsanjani, Matt Lieber, Darian LaBeach, Courtney Hamilton, Kelly Rose, Nick Oxenhorn, Dr. Guy Winch, Paul Schneider, Thomas Curry, Shani Aviram, and Jack Saul.